Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Rachel Maddow, The Young Turks, Ring of Fire, and Tom Hartman. Go to Richard in Alabama on line three. Richard, welcome to the Young Turks. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'd like to first say that I'm a progressive, um, but I profoundly disagree with you. Okay. Uh, with both your analysis and your stance. All right. Um, Iran is an enemy of ours, and in no way, shape, or form should they be able to possess nuclear weapons. Uh, they partake of the jihadist ideology. As such, they are an active enemy of the United States. And as such, preemption is justified, up to and including Ridiculous. use of nuclear arms. No, I think that's, oh, that's just goddamn unconscionable. Thank God you're, you're not, a, thank you're God not, you're not, not a progressive. progressive. You're not a progressive. Yeah. Get the hell out of here. Oh, yes, right. I am. All right, let me, let me explain a couple of things. The first off no, is, no, no, I don't think there's anything you can explain to oh, me. Oh, I see. Okay, then why don't you do the show? You, you keep explaining what a great idea nuclear war is. Well, so I want, I want, you think a preemptive? Hang on, Richard. Hang on. I'll let you. You think a preemptive nuclear strike is would be warranted? Radiation spreading throughout the Middle East, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people killed. And you think that's a swell idea when they didn't even attack us? Just because they are have some vague thing you call jihadists that they're our enemy. So go ahead. Yes, is that a great idea? Yes, it's a wonderful idea if that's what's necessary. Right. Uh, I have no love for jihadists or their ideology yeah. or the God that they serve. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I do not lose any sleep over what happens or befalls their society, their civilization. As far as I can see, the whole Muslim history has been one of conquest mm. and destruction and wanting kind of, The kind that you're advocating right now for us, right? Yeah. I can't remember. Well, how no, the, I can't no, remember. No. Uh, who, uh, help me out, because, uh, Richard, and I, honestly, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not versed in, uh, in the religious history of the world. The Crusades, who, who picked on whom there? Help me out. Because their their whole history is is uh, uh, is violent, but not the Christian history. That's not violent at all, right? Beat up on itself. But let's understand. The yeah, let's just forget that. Don't move on. Right. It's a good point. Yeah, they, they beat oh. up on each other. I know. Uh, but it, look, help me out. Ben's on a good track here. Uh, the Inquisition. Uh, yeah, who was that? That was in Spain, but was, that was, was probably was the Muslims. The, right? the Muslim who, Inquisition. Who did the Inquisition? Is that right? Excuse me. I'm not defending the whole uh, entire practice of. Christianity. Oh no, but I'm you're saying, saying that the Muslims are violent. You have right? no, you have no love for their God, and you that. think they I'm have. I'm saying that when one looks objectively at their religion, at their history, at their culture, it's been one of unremitting, unremitting uh, bloodshed. Oh, is that right? So let me ask you something. When you you mentioned unremitting bloodshed, and reminded me of World War One and World War Two. 
Who did World War One and World War Two? It was the Muslims, right? Just help me out, Richard. Was it the Muslims? No, that was the Europeans, and that was us too. Yes. What's oh wait, that was us too. Wait, now we got the Crusades, we got yeah. the Inquisition, we got World War One, oh, we got stop, World stop, War Two. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, just let's just finish the thought here. I, I mean, wh what else? The slavery trade. That must have been the Muslims. That must have been the Muslims, right? Who did the slavery trade, Richard? Let me educate you. Or let me. Um, oh, go ahead. Educate here. Because you've been doing a great job of educating us so far, Richard. Go ahead, oh, Mr. Progressive. Perhaps I'm reaching those that are listening to you. But in any event, if you recall, Muhammad uh, started the uh, Muslim faith in Saudi Arabia. It spread from out the peninsula all through what was Christianized uh, the Middle East, the Levant, and uh, what have you. And they went and attacked the Byzantine Empire and the Roman Empire and so forth. That's right. And they were the only ones who had empires back then. Because uh, the Christians uh, had uh, no empires and they never conquered uh, anybody. Hey. They were just peace-loving people who started crusades and <laughs> pogroms Richard, and witch trials. You guys, and you guys are missing the, the big argument. I mean, both you and Richard want the same thing. You don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. No, I was going to get back to that. No, hold Richard on, and on. I don't want the same thing. Richard wants to wipe the Muslims just off the face of the earth. On. Richard mean, is a sick, sick hold individual. Hold on! So, look, I mean, as far as he's explained now, you guys want the same thing. Neither one wants Iran to have nuclear weapons, correct? Richard, correct? Correct. Okay, so Richard's idea of doing it is to wipe Iran off the face of the planet. If it comes correct? to that. Correct? If it okay. comes to that. If you know, in that. a couple of months, if it comes to that. So, Richard, yes. do you believe possibly... Using nuclear weapons at this point is a little premature, if not totally retarded. No, I don't. You, you I think still it don't be think, alive. You still don't think, think, you, you still don't think there's room for discussion and diplomacy and trying to stop their weapons program? It's time this to giddy up, huh? This is this is part of um, part of history. This is something that's oh, continued. Okay. Muslims right. have not been decisively defeated. It's left to this generation now to do it. Why, why, I just, hope hey, I don't hey, hey, give hey, you incorrect change next time you come to Starbucks and I'm working as a barista, because you'll just kill me. Muslims haven't been decisively Dude, aren't there more? They're, they're the whole freaking world. What do you mean they haven't been decisively defeated? You're not going to defeat a religion that is as... No, 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 no. He, he's saying we can. He says just nuke them all. You know who else is jihadist, you know, or could be considered jihadist, Richard? Syria, uh, Yemen, Oman, Saudi Arabia... Pakistan? Should we uh, large nuke parts, all of them? Large parts of Russia? Should we should we nuke all them, Richard? As far as I'm concerned, Muslims as a whole, yeah. as a general construct, um, occupy a subordinate concern or moral concern for me. Um, subordinate I, moral I concern. I, I love that. That's right. They, I despise their ideology. I despise their religion. Richard, but you kind-hearted, Richard right. the kind-hearted, well, wants to exterminate 1.2 billion Muslims. Let me ask because you. Because they have a lower morals than Richard does. Well, Richard. Richard, God bless you, man. You just topped Adolf Hitler. No, Congratulations. Yeah, I wasn't even going to go that far, but yeah. Well, yeah. Richard, you, 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 uh, you know, I mean, the argument of, of whether uh, how to deal with Iran is an interesting debate for people, but you just proclaimed yourself a, 
a bigot. Uh, there's no other way around it. Uh, that's the only way. Uh, only the only thing a reasonable person could uh, could conclude from what you just said. Uh, unfortunately, I was gonna I was ready to have some more fun with you, but no, we're but, done. Yeah, but I'm done. Yeah, Richard the kind-hearted with the subordinate moral values or whatever the hell he's got is willing to kill 1.2 billion. But you know what, Richard? It makes sense because you brought up a history of violence in some religion. I forget which religion you said, but that religion did a Holocaust, didn't they? Where mm-hmm. they try to wipe out a whole nother religion? Oh, wait a minute. That's right. That wasn't Islam. That was also Christianity. You know, Richard, I'm sure everything will be okay just as long as we wipe them off the face of the planet, but preserve the infrastructure and oil. Right? Yeah, yeah you've got to keep their oil. That's very important. Conservatives love to beat up on the IRS. It's damn near impossible to carry on a conversation with a true knee-jerk neocon and not have to listen to them tell you how evil the Internal Revenue Service is. But just stay tuned this year and watch how all the right-wing windbags really focus the attack on the IRS because the IRS is defying Karl Rove. They're defying George Bush, and they're even defying our Republican Congress in their effort to investigate fraud abuses of 501c3 nonprofit organizations. When I first looked at this story, I suspected that the IRS had a Republican political agenda in the way that they were targeting 501c3 groups. I was wrong. In fact, I found that the IRS may be one of the most important vehicles for saving religion and preserving democracy. They've begun to seriously draw the line on the mixture of politics and religion by revoking the tax-exempt status of churches and religious organizations that are pushing church money, church facilities, and church manpower into the world of politics. You see, in the year 2006, it looks to me like the IRS is the only government entity that's noticed that churches don't pay taxes because they have a special tax exemption and that churches are rubbing that tax exemption in the faces of every tax-paying American by completely ignoring all the rules and all the limitations. They're ignoring the fact that that tax-free money is a gift from the American public. In order to collect billions of dollars and not pay taxes on that money, the rules are very simple. Anybody can understand them. First, as a church or religious organization, don't endorse political candidates or political positions. Second, don't distribute voters' guides at all. A religious group can't recommend their favorite slate of political candidates or their favorite political party positions. A preacher can't endorse a particular candidate specifically or implicitly from the pew or, in fact, in any capacity as a church leader. And it should be more than obvious that a church can't mobilize its staff or its congregation in an effort to promote a political candidate or a political party. It's just good common sense. It's very easy stuff to understand, especially if a church wants to collect huge amounts of money and then pay no income taxes at all. It's easy to understand. But in Pennsylvania, Rick Santorum and about 150 clergy members don't seem capable of playing by the rules in that tax exemption that the IRS has laid out so plainly for all Americans. This month, those Pennsylvania pastors have already laid their 501c3 tax exemptions on the line by posting a website 
website notice called the Pennsylvania Pastors Network, where that church-based organization wants to hire 10 full-time political organizers to help churches mount a get-out-and-vote campaign. No surprises about what they want their congregation to vote for, because those clergy are joined at the hip with a neocon advocacy group that calls itself Let Freedom Ring, that's been for years hustling religious groups into becoming more Republican. It doesn't take a trained theologian or a trained bottom-feeding politico like Rick Santorum to follow the money on this one and to understand that this is all about politics pure and simple. And that's just fine if those clergy want to make the mistake of moving from preaching the Word of God to preaching the Word of Karl Rove. But it's also fine with most Americans if every one of those clergy and every one of those churches involved in that abuse of the law loses their tax-exempt status, pure and simple. Just think of how much money American taxpayers could put back into an American treasury that's going so bankrupt that we're approaching a $9 trillion debt record. It's the largest in the history of civilization. We could take a portion of all that tax-exempt money and use it to fund Social Security, bring American education into the 21st century, pay for health care for all Americans, improve America's social services, pay for government research into life-threatening diseases, and eliminate poverty in America. Every one of us should be grateful that the IRS had enough courage to revoke the tax-exempt status of Pat Robertson's Christian broadcasting cash cow in the mid-80s when he crossed the line, and Jerry Falwell's old-time gospel hour pack when it became evident to all of us that all this tax-exempt money was just being laundered into pure and simple Republican politics. Several months ago, progressives were upset that a minister at a Pasadena, California church made a political speech about the war in Iraq and the IRS began an investigation about the church's 501c3 status. As hard as it may be to stomach, the truth is that the IRS did exactly what they're required to do to protect the interest of all American taxpayers. In America today, churches and other religious groups own about 25% of all the land in the U.S. The assets of the Roman Catholic Church alone exceed the holdings of America's five largest corporations combined. The average American family pays more than $1,000 every Every year to make up for revenue lost to churches and religious groups because of tax exemptions. And most of us aren't bothered by that because it's easy to see how organized religion is taking up the slack for a Republican government that's abandoned charity and decency in the way that government treats the least of our society. But at the same time, a growing majority of Americans draw the line where it comes to their church playing politics with their money. And if 150 churches in Pennsylvania want to use taxpayer money to elect Rick Santorum, the numbers show that most Americans wouldn't even blink if the IRS did exactly what we've given them the authority to do, and that is to revoke their tax exemptions and draw a clear line between religion and politics, a line that even Rick Santorum and bottom feeders just like him can't cross. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to her kitchen chair And she broke your throne and she cut your hair 
And from your lips you drew the hallelujah. Now it's time to talk about um, one of the scariest films that I have seen in a long time and one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Uh, it's called uh, Jesus Camp. It's a documentary about a religious camp in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. And it's for kids, kids often as young as five or six. They go there to get saved, to you know, accept the Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but also to get really drilled by these evangelical Christians, Christ, uh, children's ministers, um, uh, adults who minister to children, uh, to, to minister to these kids about their, their devotion to God. When you watch the film, the reason that it's scary is because this seems uh, less like camp and more like uh, a way that kids are being brainwashed, really young kids in a lot of cases. Um, the camp's pastor is named Becky Fisher, and uh, she's one of the central characters in the film. She is one of the reasons that the film is so disturbing. Uh, pastor Becky Fisher uh, says that Muslims raise their children uh, to be willing to die for Islam, and she would like to do the same for American Christian children. They're going into the schools. You go into Palestine and I can take you to some websites that will absolutely shake you to your foundations and show you photographs of where they're taking their kids to camps like we take our kids to Bible camps and they're putting hand grenades in their hands. They're teaching them how to put on bomb belts. They're teaching them how to use rifles. They're teaching them how to use machine guns. It's no wonder with that kind of intense training and discipling that those young people are ready to kill themselves for the cause of Islam. I want to see young people who are as committed to the cause of Jesus Christ as the young people are to the cause of Islam. I want to see them as radically laying down their lives for the gospel as, as they are uh, over in, in Pakistan and in Israel and, and Palestine and all those different places, you know, because we have, excuse me, but we have the truth. Trying to build an army of Christian suicide bombers among children in America. Joining to talk to me now about Jesus Camp is one of my favorite people in America, Mike Papantonio. He hosts Ring of Fire with Bobby Kennedy Jr. here on Air America Radio on the weekends. One of the best known and most successful trial lawyers in the country. And now in this new film, Jesus Camp, Mike Papantonio stars basically as himself. He stars as the voice of reason in the film. Mike Papantonio, thank you for joining us. Good to hear from you again. Yeah. Now, uh, how did you end up getting hooked up with this Jesus Camp documentary? Well, there are a lot of people listening to Air America. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. A lot of people are tuning into Air America, and these directors, they followed the Ring of Fire. So Bobby Kennedy and I did a couple of shows on um, kind of the mean-spirited movement that's taking place in the evangelical movement and how it's affecting politics and religion, and they picked up on that. I have to say it is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life, but we should talk about what the, what the Jesus Camp idea is is it's basically it, it's a camp that's sort of a bible camp it's more of an evangelism and and right-wing religious right politics camp for kids that's run by um, a pastor named becky fisher well right i mean it's not really about just religion what's happening is that religion and politics have become so close that now what i call the political evangelicals they feel comfortable having a special setting to teach their children not just about religion but about politics it's not the word of matthew it's not the word of jesus anymore it's the word of Karl rove and george bush mm. and so these kids are hearing this at four and five years old it's it's, it's nothing short of brainwashing well, you know, and Mike, when you talk about indoctrination, that's really what it 
seems like. I mean, the film is viscerally scary because you, they use the idea of being born again, of being saved and being, recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They use that to say, well, that can happen to kids as young as four and five years old. So at four and five and six and seven years old, we want to put these kids in an environment where they can pray for the president. They can learn about anti-abortion politics and tactics. They can learn about the evils of the liberal culture that they need to be at war with. They can start to conceive of themselves as warriors and then basically set about to lead a fight against their own country. It's really it's an army. Well, that's the kind of language they use. You, you may recall in the movie where they're dressed up in camouflage and hitting sticks together with, with face paint. Yeah. I mean, that was a spooky, spooky scene. You don't grow a church. You don't grow a religion by bombing abortion clinics and, and murdering women clinic doctors or ostracizing everybody who's different or cozying up to rich and powerful. Uh, you, you, know, you don't grow a church by being a warmonger. And so all of these things, though, are happening in the evangelical political setting. And there's something going on here, obviously, more than just religion. It's not about the word of God. It's about the word of George Bush. It's a, it's a Republican, mean-spirited message that's being drilled in these kids' heads. It is very political, and it's very extreme. But, Mike, I wanted to ask you about... How much of the scary stuff that you hear in this film and the scary stuff you hear, particularly coming out of these children's ministers' mouths, how much of it is rhetoric and how much of it is to be taken at face value? I mean, we played a clip at the opening of this segment here in which you heard the pastor saying that they wanted children to be prepared to die for Jesus the way that suicide bombers are prepared to die for Islam. I mean, they, they're, they're using some of the most extreme rhetoric I can imagine. How much of it do you think just is rhetoric and how much do you think of it should be taken at face value and seem that well, I, I, I think when you're talking to five or six year old, you have to take all of it seriously. I, I, the, 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 you could call it rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, it can be you, you could say, well, this is all just symbolic language. But when you're dressing a child up in camouflage and you're painting their face and you have them dancing around with sticks, uh, you know, there's something more to that message. It's affecting and it's shaping these kids. And these kids, you, you understand, these kids, they're preparing to be America's leaders. They want them to be on the school boards. They want them to be senators, uh, congressmen, the president, if they can. These kids, this is all they know. These kids have never even been to public schools. They're taught that the, the, the theory of Darwin is the work of the devil. They're taught from the time they can think that the founding fathers told us that if you take God out of politics, that America will be destroyed. This is all they know. They don't have the ability. Uh, they never develop the ability to think for themselves. And it is a very scary thing. I got to tell you something. I looked at there's there's a scene in that movie, the last part where I'm taking off my headphones and I'm just I'm dazed. I'm literally dazed because I just interviewed the woman who runs that camp. And I'm That's just right. thinking, I, I feel like I was talking to an alien. She said un- in, that, in that interview with you, she says to you in the film that democracy is set up to destroy itself because democracy right. requires that you give everyone equal rights and therefore an equal freedom. And therefore, destro- democracy will be destroyed on the earth and the Lord will be the true king. Yes. It's an apocalyptic vision of the world, don't you see? It, it, it is, it's, it, they have to fulfill this prophecy. And, and when you talk to them about it, they are completely 
They're waiting for that rapture when they look to the right and they look to the left and, and they're gone. But those those people, those sinners are still standing there. They're waiting for that day. And they believe that George Bush, they honestly believe, Rachel, I'm not exaggerating this one bit. They honestly believe that George Bush has been anointed to take them to that day. That's why it doesn't make any difference whether we invade Iraq or Iran. It doesn't make any difference whether we proliferate a nuclear war over there. It's supposed to happen. Uh, look, I, as you know, I. I have a very strong Christian background. I'm not down on Christianity. This this is an abomination of Christianity. And the problem is, Rachel, at the end of the day, what happens when you mix politics and religion is, is, is if politics does well, then the religion does well. If the politics drops off the face of the earth, so does religion. You can't tie the two together because every, every, everything has its day. And, and, and if you mix those two, both of them are at risk, politics and religion. Mike Papantonio, you're one of my favorite people in the entire world. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining Rachel. us. I miss you, Mike. It'd be good to see you when you're back up oh, here. Oh, I can't wait. Mike Papantonio hosts Ring of Fire with Bobby Kennedy Jr. here on Air America uh, on Air America Radio on the weekends. Uh, he also stars as himself as basically the, the voice of reason in a new alarming documentary called Jesus Camp. It's playing at the Regal Theater here in New York City. Uh, you can get tickets at the box office, office if you haven't gotten them online. It, it's getting a lot of attention and kudos at the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, we've put a link to the film so you can learn more about it even if you're not here in New York uh, in case it is coming to your town so you can also see clips from it on Online. I would put a link to the film website at our site, which is MattoOnline.com. What's really going on below, but now you never show that to me, do you? But remember when I moved in you, and the holy dove was moving too, and every breath we drew is how. Kevin Phillips is with us. Kevin Phillips. Uh, I, I I have to say, Kevin Phillips, welcome to the program. <laughs> Happy to be here. I, I, I just have to say, you are one of the most brilliant commentators of the American scene, bar none. I mean, I, I first became involved in politics in 1964 at the age of 13, going door-to-door for Barry Goldwater. And when your book came out in 69, that, by that time, my politics had flipped 180 degrees and I was rather distressed by <laughs> the, the emerging Republican majority. You now seem to have uh, made a transition, as it were. Your new book, American Theocracy, The Parallel and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. If it's okay with you, I'd like to try to, in the short time we have, touch on each one of these three. Sure. And, uh, I, and, and I want to just say to my listeners, and, I, and we don't do a lot of author interviews on this program, and although I, I, I do, you know, a monthly one for BuzzFlash, uh, but this is a book that everyone, every person listening to this program, Republican, Democratic, uh, non-political, whatever, should be reading. This, uh, you have written one of the most important books of this, certainly of this decade. You note in your book, um, the reason for highlighting history's relative handful of covenant, covenanting, covenant, you can say it. Covenanting. Thank you. Covenanting cultures is the biblical attitudes their people invariably share. Religious intensity, insecure history, and willingness to sign up with the Old Testament God of war per, for protection. And then you note, Israelis, and to an extent scripture-reading Americans, are on their way to being the last peoples of the covenant. Um, two questions. Number one, can you uh, elaborate on that? What does that mean? What does that mean for America and for the future of the world? And wouldn't you throw Islam into that category? 
Well, the covenant is essentially something that's a, uh, I think, a Christian conception. Whether you could put Islam in uh, and borrow that same concept or whether it's something related, I wouldn't try to say theologically. But what's happened over the years, uh, Jews and then Protestants, Catholics basically didn't do this too much, have picked up on this. And you've had covenanting peoples in, in Holland and in Scotland, in the United States, the, the Puritans when they came, in some ways the Mormons think of themselves this way. Uh, elsewhere, you've had them in Northern Ireland, ferocious uh, covenanting there. But it, it hasn't lasted in the last 20 or 30 years as things have changed in Northern Ireland. And you had them in South Africa, the Afrikaners, the Boers. And that, too, is pretty much dissolved. So that's why I say that the people of the covenant, the Christians of the covenant, are principally in the United States, and then you have the Jews of the covenant in Israel. But it, it's more than just of the covenant. It's of a particular worldview, isn't it? Yes. I mean, if, if you're a... Which becomes a political worldview. Right. It, it's an embattled uh, people who believe that their tribulations qualify them as having been singled out and, and having a covenant with God, and... Generally, the whole history that breeds this attitude, it usually takes a couple of centuries to really set in. Uh, the people who have this attitude are very biblical, a sense of very embattled. They, they generally claim territory or they relate to territory. Uh, it's just hard to describe it in a way that doesn't sound archaic, and in a sense it is archaic because of its biblical origins. Kevin Phillips, author of American Theocracy, in the next hour of this program I'll be uh, discussing, debating, whatever, Rick Scarborough, who's published a book called Liberalism Kills Children. His proposal, his thesis, and that of many of these folks, is that Christianity is under assault. As a Christian myself, I find that rather ironic. Christians are certainly the majority in the United States. I'm I'm wondering if you, if your sense of it, it, certainly it seems to be, actually you build a very strong case for it in this book, perhaps you can expand for our listeners, that without that ultra-hyped, continuously hyped sense of persecution, a lot of these guys wouldn't have the power that they have, they wouldn't have the platform that they have, and they wouldn't have the followers they have. Oh, well, I think that's exactly right. And in the case of the South, the reasons why the Southerners are uh, in a sense, covenanters within the United States is the role of the Civil War in the interpretation that the South survived the Civil War. It stuck to its churches. Its churches regarded themselves as embattled. The Southern Baptists would not rejoin with the Northern Baptists. And they expanded. They expanded to fill in the old Confederacy. They expanded in the border states. They expanded westward. And now there are almost 20 million members of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's as many as you get in all the mainline Protestant denominations combined. And it's a pretty militant culture in terms of its beliefs and its biblical fidelity. And they claim that George Bush is just as biblically faithful as they are. And in large part, what sustains their, 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 their tenacity and ferocity is their sense of being under siege. Yes, their sense of being a, a regional people, a, a separate identity that they have and that they wouldn't give up. 
after the Civil War and that this has made them strong, but it always makes them, in a way, persecuted. And, of course, the covenanters of, of all varieties have always felt this persecution, mm-hmm. and that's part of what makes them tick. They have to they have to maintain it. Thus, the war on Christmas and the war on Christianity and all the stuff that they're hyping over at Fox News and whatnot. Yes, now, but in fairness to them, I think if you go back in the 60s and 70s, there was an attempt on the part of liberals and seculars to push uh, churches and religion further out of the public square. And we live in Connecticut near a little town fittingly called Bethlehem where they have a uh, Christmas celebration, Christmas manger scene. It was really under attack. Now it's gone so far the other way that you have a traffic jam at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Now, to, to move to debt you and, and the economy in general, you talk about the German, the Japanese, the, the Swiss exports, um, the, 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 the role of America relative to the rest of the world. You note, for example, the Germans, the Japanese, and the Swiss – in terms of, of production and exports and, and the, on a per capita basis. You see, the Germans, the Japanese, and the Swiss do this with workforce wages and benefits and industrial production costs as high or higher than those in the United States. Yet they are net creditor nations. We've become the world's largest debtor. They enjoy strong current, sa- current account surpluses. We have the largest current account deficit in the world, I believe. And they have citizens who have achieved uh, relatively high savings rates. What do they know that we don't know? What are they doing that we're not doing? Well, one of the things they do is that they maintain a a sort of national sense as well as an international sense. There are people that believe in their countries as something special economically and culturally. And they also have very, very successful export machines and focuses. They, they produce top-quality products and they export them. And they do this because they pay a lot of attention to quality in a way that, in many ways, the United States is sort of forgotten about. If we buy something for $39, you know it's never worth repairing it. You throw it out when it starts to malfunction. The other thing they haven't done is they haven't become financialized countries. And the United States moving money around now constitutes a larger share of the GDP than manufacturing does. It's really a striking upheaval. Financial services are 21% of GDP, and uh, manufacturing is down to 14%. It was reversed in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, that's the, the major shift that you document in your book, and I, I thought it was you know, very, very well done. Um, you're, the hawking of America, massive U.S. international debt is the pro- product of domestic overconsumption. Uh, we, we have less than a minute left, Kevin Phillips. Are we facing a Great Depression? Did, have these guys sold us out? I think we're facing a major and painful readjustment involving everything from oil to the excesses of debt and the probability that the dollar is, is overvalued at the present time. I think we face a wrenching readjustment probably in the next decade. What can and should Americans do about that? Uh, Start discussing it. Start forcing the politicians to pay attention. They don't want to confront all this. It's difficult. It would offend their contributors, so they'd rather just uh, be like ostriches. We've been living off essentially a credit card for for decades now. Certainly for the last uh, 15 years, and it's got out of control after 9-11. For the average person, what will be the consequence of this? For the average person who doesn't have a lot of capital skills and education, they're going to be hard-pressed to maintain what they've got now. 
Kevin Phillips, the book American Theocracy, The Peril and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. Buy this book and read it. Kevin Phillips, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. All right, guys. Now, on to the lovely story of the resurrection. <laughs> so uh, Apparently, the, it happens in the Philippines. I didn't know that. So Dominic Diamond, he's a British broadcaster, and he went to the Philippines because he wanted to be uh, crucified. Most people go to the Philippines for the uh, lady boys. Um, I believe that's Thailand. I think they go to the Philippines just for the really bad food and this... And the women, just yeah, the, the women. underage hookers. Oh, it's but oh, it, the, the lady boys are there in the Philippines too. Oh, they are. I'm oh, not. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking I'm, Thailand. I'm not uh, well versed, but no, I hear you. The Philippines is a beautiful country, uh, and uh, uh, and I actually grew up knowing a tremendous number of Filipinos. Um, there was a lot of yelling. That's basically what I sensed. Why did you know a lot of Filipinos? My best friend's housekeeper was Filipino, and she lived there, and she had the whole domain over the downstairs of the house, and she would bring all her little Filipino friends over all the time, and they are tiny. Yeah, they, they are. are a tiny little people, and they would uh, go they downstairs are. and at all hours of the night and yell at each other. You show up at the door, you'd be like, because it was the basement, and so you and it was a you know fully furnished, nice basement, but the basement door would be closed. You'd open the door, you hear. Bah! It was great. It was fantastic. Okay, let me ask you a couple questions, Ben. <laughs> Your friends kept Filipinos in the basement? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Fascinating. Nope. And number two, is there any chance that, that was just that particular family and not the whole race of Filipinos? I don't know. I never thought about it like that. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> no, so here's what, here's and I'll do this, and, and I, you may want to uh, turn down your radio. For Have parts. you noticed though when you when you listen to a, a group of other people speaking in different languages, though it always seems like they're like, they're yelling. No, these people were yelling. <laughs> Don't give everybody. That's a good point. But these guys. No, no. It, they, they were. And her name was Isabel, and she was. She. I, I must have had 150 meals in my life with her. But anyway, so I would go over to Dan's uh, house. I would call Dan on the phone, right? And she would answer. He's them. your friend with the He's Filipinos in the basement, right? And, and he would. And 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 his ma, single mother, and and she worked like 70 hours a week. So they 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 needed to live in help just to feed the kids and take care. They needed a whole Filipino yeah. family in the basement. Um, and so we would uh, call up, and, and she would answer the phone. You know, hello. And I would say, uh, hello, Isabel, is, can I talk, it's Ben, can I talk to Dan? Mm -hmm. Right? And then she would then proceed to go, Dan! <laughs> and every time, and I'd be like, where could he be? Where could he be? You have to yell that much. Can you please go get him? <laughs> can you start to go up the stairs? But Dan! Okay. Now, I had a lot of different friends from a lot of different races, you know, uh, growing up. And I'd call my friend Tuan, Tuan Nguyen. He's Vietnamese, of course. Mm -hmm. And his grandmother would pick up the phone and say, Doing not home. <laughs> that meant Tuan not home. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, then I'd call Cindy, and her grandmother would pick up the phone. Cindy's Chinese. And the grandmother would say, Wah. Wah? Yeah. Wah. Really? I, I I never understood. We, to this day, we never understood what it meant. Once we made fun of Cindy because of her grandmother, and she cried. <laughs> it, was it, was not, a, yeah. it was a bad day. It was not a good idea. But it's funny. I mean, Jill's right in a lot of ways. Foreign languages sound foreign. They sound so foreign. Yeah. <laughs> but then then then. But it was great because they would literally. It would be like a little Manila downstairs, and I mean, you come over. There'd be thirty five people. They have great time. Did they ever uh, crucify anybody down there? There was no crucifixion. There were. They, you know what they did? They played poker. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, who doesn't love the Filipinos? Yeah, who doesn't love the Filipinos? By the way, there's some Filipino women that are 
gorgeous. All right, so this guy, Dominic Diamond, British broadcaster, uh, he's a radio and TV presenter, and he's an outspoken a Daily Star columnist, it says here. He goes down a Good Friday for a television program, right? Um, and what he was going to do, as you might imagine, as I, as I inferred on Good Friday, was he was going to get himself crucified. You mean like they're going to tie his hands around the cross and stuff and put up the cross, and he's going to sit there for a half an hour or something and then come back down? Nope. Um, Diamond was set to join an elite group of radical Roman Catholics who mark each Easter by reenacting the crucifixion. Thousands of people gather to watch the volunteers nailed to crosses with metal spikes the size of pencils. Ow! Yeah. Well, so Dominic Diamond... such a bad idea. He was going to do it for ch- Channel 5, Television Channel 5 in, in England. Sure. He, uh, Dominic Diamond, though, when it became his turn to um, to do this, uh, he'd been negotiating it for some time, right? And uh, he, d- he wanted to go on the pilgrimage, uh, uh, taking in the Vatican and a Jesuit retreat in Italy, culminating in the crucifixion to restore his faith in God, right? Uh, what do you mean negotiating? Like, can you guys do maybe just do one hand and one foot? What do you, what do you mean negotiating? Um, did I say negotiation? Yeah. I think maybe I said meant to say crucifixion. Okay, uh, that's all right. So he's planning to do this for a while, and he finally gathers up the courage, and he's down right, there. Right, and he's down there, and he goes through, and part of it is, uh, 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 he says, uh, at no point, uh, he says, at all times in the journey, I've been guided by my God in ways I could never have predicted, having experienced the humility of bearing my own cross through the streets. So he, you know, he went through the streets, they carry their crosses just like Jesus, and then they get crucified. But at the moment that it was his turn to get crucified, he wasn't first. Um, he said, uh, well, uh, what happened was he, he broke down and wept after watching nine Filipinos take their turns. Just be, like Jesus did. They also get whipped. You know, Jesus did that too. Yeah, but Jesus broke down and cried. And he said then that God wanted me only to pray at the foot of my cross. <laughs> oh, did God change his mind at the last second? Yeah. So, did he? So he sunk huh, to his knees. I wonder why he did that. He sunk to his knees and started to pray, sobbing, and said God only wanted me to pray at the foot of the cross as local people and tourists started to boo. Oh, that's awesome. All um, right, so let's understand what happened uh, here. Let me break it down real quick for the people who didn't get it. Guy goes to get nailed on the cross. They're going to put the actual spikes through his hands and his feet. He sees the nine Filipinos do it, and they're not playing. The Filipinos aren't. Yeah, I mean, they're yelling, but they're not playing. Do they have to insert um, the the people they get crucified with, with the sword in the side as well? Because that happened, too. Oh, really? Uh, no, I don't yeah, think Yeah, they were, they were crucified with the, the nails in the hands and then the feet, and then to make sure that they were that Jesus was really dead. They stuck a sword in him. Mm, I don't know. Spear, I believe. Yeah. Whatever. And then that's why he bleeds from the side, etc. Now I, I've heard of this Filipino ritual before. By the way, it's called carabrio. Of course, oh, it is. Or carabrio. So romantic. Uh, I, in fact, we went to Passion of the Christ, and right before uh, I was talking to the person sitting next to me, because I, I definitely want to know what kind of people go to Passion of the Christ, you know you're going to run into some crazies. Crazy and it was a, people. And it was, uh, and it was a Filipino woman, and she was kind of young, and said, and we started talking about this, and she kept saying before the movie, you know, this is real. This is the truth. This is history. I'm like, I got it. I got it. Let's just watch the movie, right? And she's like, No. This is history. I'm like, I got it. I got it. And then she's documentary. God. And then she uh, started telling me about her brother who does this thing. Okay. Carabrio. And every year he does it. Every year he gets, and he's got the things, the holes in his hand. And interesting. We, I talked to a, there's an interview here with a guy who did it. He's done it for seven straight years. Maybe it's the brother. Maybe it's the brother. And then, uh, but they do other things. Like Ben's right. They like, uh, 
lash themselves with a whip sometimes, or they have other people do it. They walk on glass. It's do like a whole w- carnival of freaks. Do right? they wear the crown of thorns? Yes, too? they do, and apparently that's really painful. Really? Yeah, it's a crown of thorns. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, but yeah. I didn't. I would have figured that, that would be the least painful out of all the different no, things happening. No, they don't find just like How do they rose thorns. They're like. Oh, and they they scrunch it down on your head. They're not playing. And all the stories I've read about this, and we've done stories about this in the past, I never see, like, what do they do afterwards? I mean, they need medical treatment. Oh, yeah, they get medical treatment. I mean, but they need antibiotics, and there's, I mean, uh, you know, they've been stabbed through the hands with a nail. I don't really think that's, that, that's really going through the crucifixion, as you should be, if you have to get medical treatment afterwards. I mean, if you really want to do it up like Jesus did, die. Well, then you, but then and you then ha- God will really dig you. Yeah, but then you have to get resurrected. <laughs> and that's kind of a pain in the Yeah, it's promise that won't happen. All right, so this guy goes down there, and he's going to do this whole thing. He sees the people do it, and then all of a sudden, he starts weeping like a little bitch. I'm sorry. That's t- now we're going to have the bitch uh, you know what? coalition we, against us. We're make, I, I think we should give him a pat on the back. I mean, he got his marbles back. I mean, I think we should be laughing at the people that actually get nailed to the cross. I mean, the fact that this guy knelt down and started weeping... I mean, good yeah. job, buddy. You so, finally figured out you're crazy, and you tried to resurrect yourself. No, no. Let me just tell the, my favorite part of the story, is that the last-minute revelation. Yeah, it's not just that he chickened no, out. No, he didn't chicken out, Jill. He didn't come to his God chickened out. No, God told him at right. the last second, man, that's going to be really painful, right? So he's like, oh, God, God, what, God, what did you say, God? Oh, thank God. Okay, God says I shouldn't do God it. God only wants me to pray. He want me to get nailed to the cross. Now, here are the negotiations part. Excuse me. Negotiations had taken place to bestow on Diamond the privilege of becoming only the second Westerner ever to take part in this event. It's held in the town of Katood, and here you go, Jank. Men dress in white robes and flagellate themselves with glass-tipped paddles and bamboo whips. In That's pe- what I was thinking. Not pe- walking on glass. The, the, right. The, Gla- they have the, the, the glass-tipped pedals, and they whip themselves <laughs> in penance for their sins. Now, it was going to be a documentary. Producers say the documentary uh, will still be aired. Let me just hit you with a couple people who did oh, this. Oh, we got to get a hold of that documentary. Sebastian Horsley, he's an oil painter. He was the first Westerner to take part in it. He said it would be valuable for him to experience that level of pain for artistic rather than religious reasons. He's not even that religious. Uh-huh. He just wanted to do it because he thought it'd be cool. And and he says uh, 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 that it's not a surprise and he's glad that this guy backed out of it because he thinks that doing it for a documentary, he goes, I'm glad he bottled it. I mean, going over there with a the Channel 5 crew is not right. It got leaked to the press when I did it, but I wouldn't allow any film crews to come with me. So he, you know, he was he was hardcore. He yeah. was he was authentic. Um, because if you're this level of crazy, you know, you should really carry it all the way. You don't want to exploit your insanity. You just want to kind of enjoy it in your own peace and private after they carry you away to the hospital. Let me hit you then with uh, the guy who might be the brother of your friend at the movie, uh-huh. uh, Ruben Anaja. He's a Filipino carpenter, takes part in the festival every year. He became Diamond's mentor as the presenter tried to summon the willpower to be crucified, willpower that ultimately did not exist. Mr. Inaje uh, has had himself nailed to a cross every year since 1988. Oh, fun. 18 straight years to show his gratitude for God for saving him when he fell out of a window. You know what? <laughs> oh, no, wait, 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 wait. Everybody enjoy that. Okay. Oh, thank you, God. You saved me from that uh, terrible injury. So every year, let me get another terrible injury. That oh my god! This, this are you sure he's a Filipino carpenter and not a Jewish carpenter? Uh. <laughs> you know what these people aren't getting is that Jesus did all this so we wouldn't have to do it. 
That's actually it. They're missing the big point point of Jesus' big moment. And I think it's sad because they're taking away from how special it is what Jesus did by reenacting it and taking away his glory. Jesus did this so we wouldn't have to. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. That's right. Now, going to the break, let me uh, add one little thing. I think I'm a better Christian than they are. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna. When we come back from the break, I want to hit you with uh, what the executive producer said, and just an indication that this Dominic Diamond character is obvious. Well, not that we need any substantiation. He a crazy person. Right. By the way, Jesus uh, didn't do this for us. Jesus thought he was the Son of God and that he was going to get rescued. That's why he cried out on the cross, "God, why have you forsaken me?" And God uh, apparently was unmoved, and he died. And nothing ever happened other than that. Just, you know, a little side note so you uh, understand actual history. You know, yeah, I was going to say, that's history. That's history. The devil goes after the young. those who cannot fend for themselves. That's why we're trying to help you. We're trying to warn you. And while I'm on the subject, let me say something about Harry Potter. Warlocks are enemies of God. And I don't care what kind of hero they are. They're an enemy of God. And had it been in the Old Testament, Harry Potter would have been put to death. This is Ben Mankiewicz from the Young Turks. If you'd like to podcast the entire Young Turks show, please go to our website at www.theyoungturks.com for more information. You can also support the show by becoming a TYT member or by purchasing Young Turks merchandise. Thanks for listening, everybody. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We live in a world full of crazy people and we're the minority. We've got to stick together, though, and that's my awkward segue of the day to ask you to go vote for me on Podcast Alley. I can just feel that top ten within my grasp. If you don't think that a podcast is capable of jumping from number 300 to number 10 in just one month, well, I tell you, it's it's doable. If I can get every single one of you to go vote right now, I could do it. You got to do it now, though, because if we wait till the end of the month, um, I I don't even have enough listeners to uh, to match the number of votes that, that the top podcasts get. So you better get on that real quick. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one. <laughs>